I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And I am currently coming to you from the southbound side of the M1, uh, somewhere just around Nottingham. Uh, with no Ian Morris this week. Uh, but I am here, of course, with my uh, brother and driver, senior editor at CNET.com, Andrew Hoyle. Hello there. I must point out, I'm not your driver like that's my employment. That's what I do. I'm not a chauffeur for Nate now. That isn't what my life has come to. Yeah, we were caught in a blizzard from uh, where we were in, in Derbyshire and we thought rather than skipping a show, why not try and see if we can actually do a bit of a road trip show from the M1, which is what we're going to attempt to do now. Um, but nonetheless, this show is still brought to you by you. And thank you very much to our patrons supporting us each week at patreon.com forward slash UK tech and also for keeping us company in our Discord channel while we've been ploughing through the snow and so far not having killed ourselves. So if you are one of our patrons, this is your extended ad-free version of this week's M1 show. And if you're not yet a patron but would like to get our ad-free versions, our extended cuts, live streaming, access, of course, to our Discord members club, head to patreon.com forward slash UK tech and find out how you can support us with no commitment. Let's get on with some news then, I think, uh, while we are just approaching Junction 22 here on the southbound M1. Uh, UK banks have banned Bitcoin purchases with credit cards. Lloyds Banking Group, in fact, has uh, banned people from doing so. They represent banks including Halifax, MBNA and Bank of Scotland. Uh, And The Guardian says this week that it's thought to be the first time in the UK that credit card customers have been banned from borrowing in order to buy the cryptocurrency. Now, significant numbers of people in Britain are thought to have bought Bitcoin as it surged in value. Now, it peaked at over £14,000 for one Bitcoin in December, but has fallen as low as £4,300 this week. So one of the reasons the banks are doing this is to prevent people from buying something at you know a value of 10 grand, getting themselves into a lot of debt, thinking they're going to get a good return on that Bitcoin investment, only to end up in crippling debt that they can't repay and the bank would ultimately have to foot the bill for. Um, so, you know, Bitcoin has gone through a very wide uh, range of price changes over the last year or so. Um, On Tuesday, it managed to bounce back up to about something around $9,000, so it's about six, seven thousand, six thousand pounds. And then the it had a 70% slump so far from uh, the high that we reported just now in. December of fourteen thousand pounds, and this this kind of really shows what can what can go wrong with something like Bitcoin. And I think one of the most interesting examples of where people have perhaps uh, got into hot water, or at least in this case, not got into cold water, was back in twenty ten. There was a classic case of a, a Florida-based programmer called Laszlo. Um, I can't pronounce his surname. Haniet? Not quite sure. Let's just call him. Dave, uh, who famously bought two Papa John's pizzas uh, for 10,000 bitcoins, 10,000 bitcoins. Uh, At the time, that was only worth about $40, um, but at the 
cryptocurrencies peak in December, that amount of bitcoins would have been worth about $200 million. And he spent it on two pizzas. Um, Andy, have you been at all tempted to jump into the Bitcoin craze or the Ethereum craze uh, as a way of trying to make some uh, a fast buck, as our friends across the pond would say? Um, honestly, no. It's The problem I found is that there's a lot of talk in the media about these... Uh, uh, focusing on these cases of people who have made so much money and about how much just one Bitcoin is. And so I'm, I'm finding increasingly people are wanting to experiment with this and it seems like the one of the most risky forms of gambling possible at the moment, more so even than just sort of doing the stock market. And I think there's a lot of risk there and I think it's a smart move on the banks therefore to put these restrictions in place when they know that it's going to inevitably come back as a real problem for their customers and therefore themselves. Um, so I think that's good for them, um, but certainly for me, I have never had any particular interest. Sure, I'm always keen to try and find a way to make some extra money, why not? Um, you know, hence me now taking apparently a job as your driver, but I don't particularly intend to put any of my new money into Bitcoin. Bitcoin is one of the currencies, obviously, that sits on top of the technology called blockchain. And what I find very interesting is what's happening with these uh, things called ICOs. And you mentioned just now the idea of, um, of Bitcoin not being as secure or interesting maybe to you as, as the, the stock market is. But in the US, the Security and Exchange Commission, I think, or certainly the, the legal system in the US, is trying to consider where these initial coin offerings, this idea of instead of giving people shares of a company, they're giving them tokens um, that can ultimately be re redeemed um, when the company sort of hits its targets um, and they're trying to decide on whether they're going to turn those into what are called securities i.e. something that is you know much closer to a traditional uh, sort of share or stock in, in a company versus something that's completely unregulated decentralized and basically comes with no guarantees um, so we, we've seen an awful lot this year of activity in this uh, industry field and I think 2018 certainly is going to be probably make or break year for Bitcoin as to whether it's going to probably stick around for the long term or, or get crushed under regulation to the point that it's effectively useless. I'd have to ask you though, because like you know a lot more about this from your writing with Bloomberg and from covering on the podcast, like would you be interested in, in investing in Bitcoin? At this point, no. Uh, I, I, I'm personally not interested in, in investing in any cryptocurrencies of any forms. And, and obviously, you know, this is my opinion. This isn't, uh, you know, financial advice, nor the views of my employer. Um, but I would say that at this point, the volatility is so great. Um, and the opportunistic nature of, uh, of, of the market for people coming out with new coins and new types of cryptocurrency basically means that it's, it's past the point of predictability and probably past the point that I'd want to um, sort of take part in that that risky side of things. It's like anything of these investments. If you're doing the stock market, if you're simply just gambling, you need to be able to afford to lose. And I think I I simply can't, and I don't have enough capital behind me to want to invest, knowing that there's a chance that I may lose either it's all or a significant chunk of it. And so, just for me, it's just not a viable risk. I'm I'm happy to take. Well, if you have been taking this risk and investing in Bitcoin, whether you did it before the incredible increase in uh, in uh, value that Bitcoin has seen recently, or if you've just decided to put down a few pounds and see if you can make a, a return, we'd be very interested to know what you've done and if you've made any, any money back on that. And do please let us know. Hello at techpodcast.uk.
Well, we are now just six miles north of Leicester, so to celebrate, we are going to talk about the Honor 9 Lite for no reason other than that's next here in the script. Now, this is an interesting phone that Andy previewed for CNET.com this week. It sort of sits in the upper mid-range uh, of phones, but I'm very interested in it because, uh, for one thing, from the back at least, according to Andy's photos, it looks a lot like the iPhone 8 Plus had uh, a child, uh, in the form of a phone, of course, uh, with the, uh, the Google Pixel 2. It's got the fingerprint sensor in the middle of the back of the display, but it's also got the twin camera setups uh, set up in horizontal orientation on the back too. It's made of metal and glass. It's got a 5.6 inch display, 2160 by 1080 pixel resolution, metal and glass design, and it runs one of Huawei's own processors, which is one of the reasons why it's able to be at this price, which I think is around the £200 mark. So, Andy, you've been playing with this phone. You seem to be quite impressed with this so far, at least according to the headline you wrote for CNET. Um, give us an overview. What, what's exciting about this phone? Why were you so keen to write about it? So crucially, this is a phone that you've mentioned it's got this metal and glass design and it does look and feel like a much more premium device. It's got this, the, the, the display has this edge-to-edge, -edge, almost bezel-free um, design, which is the sort of thing that we're, we're used to seeing now on high-end phones. Um, certainly, as you mentioned, like the Pixel, and uh, certainly the XL, where it really pushes that screen to the edge. Um, it's something that you expect to pay a lot more money for. But this phone at £200, you really get a hell of a lot of phone um, that looks really, really nice. The specs are solid. The, um, the Full HD resolution um, is pin sharp. The camera is, OK, fine, it's not a great camera. It's not one of the best. It, certainly, if you want the best camera in the business, go the iPhone X, the Galaxy S8, but this is perfectly good enough for your snaps and it's got enough power to kind of do everything that you'd normally want to do on a daily basis. And for just 200 quid, it's just such a low amount of money. And you, you said yourself that this is um, it's like an upper mid-range phone and it is in terms of specs, but it's not in terms of price. That is very much entry-level smartphone price. Um, and really, if you're on a budget, then this is the phone to go for. So you would pick this over some of the mid-range Samsung Galaxies, if, if, they, if, if it was for somebody who wasn't uh, able to or simply didn't want to spend the, the hundreds of pounds that even some of those mid-range phones at this point can go for? At the moment, yeah, and I, I hasten to add that I've only spent um, a few days with this phone, um, testing it out um, uh, sort of casually, and we haven't run our full series of tests yet. That's something that we always reserve our final judgment for the full review on CNET, but um, so at the moment it seems to offer really a lot more than you get from uh, a lot of competing brands. Um, certainly Samsung's phones. Um, I've typically been less impressed with their, with their lower end um, offerings, with their more affordable phones. Um, but in terms of uh, specs as well, we're looking towards other phones that maybe cost £350 towards £400. Um, I think its nearest competitor is something like the uh, Moto G5 Plus, which is, uh, I believe, about £250 to £300 in the UK. So quite a lot more money, um, a big percentage more than the Honor 9 Lite. But on paper, they're very, very similar phones. And in fact, I much prefer the design of the Honor 9, Honor 9 Lite because of that really sleek looking glass back and that bold blue colour. It stands out because a lot of the affordable phones, they tend to be pretty dull affairs, really. They tend to be black and grey and, and not much going on there, but this looks the part. How would you say this compares then to what Nokia's doing? Because from what I've seen, the like the Nokia 6, for example, seems to be trying to sit in this market and, and kind of take this market for its own. I think it's around the same sort of price. The specs, to me, look you know comparable. How does that compare? 
Um, in practice at the moment, and again, I, I say I haven't spent a lot of time with it, it performs a lot better than the Nokia 6. I was very disappointed overall um, with the Nokia 6. It's got that big screen, it's got quite a, quite a cool looking metal design with those sort of sharp cut edges. Um, but to me, the, the Honor seems like a more refined phone. Um, it's a bit sleeker to use, fewer of the, of the app crashes and bumps and delays that I experienced with the Nokia 6. Um, as I say, it's early days and I haven't been able to put those two phones side by side, but I will be doing. Um, but so far, this is definitely a phone to keep in mind. Final question then, I'm looking at some of the pictures on your write-up on the website, some of the photographs that you've taken with the device. From what I can see, the camera quality is actually very, very impressive. It seems to do a decent uh, background blurring effect for the front, on the front-facing camera, and the rear-facing camera. You know, decent colours, reasonably sharp, at least according to this photo, um, and, and certainly I would say above what I would have expected from a mid-range camera. Would you Would you agree with that? Definitely. So far, the pictures look pictures look pretty decent, um, and. Crucially, you mentioned the background blur on the front-facing camera, because this is the first phone as well that it's got uh, it's got four cameras in total. It's got a 13 megapixel um, with a depth sensing camera on the back, so you can get that um, that bokeh effect. Uh, it's got the exact same setup on the front as well. So when you want to take those selfies with background blur, um, then you've got that option as well. Now I will say that the tests so far they are decent you can get it you can get a fair picture of your gurning face with a bit of out of depth um, uh, sorry um, out of focus depth of field to that background but it's not a it's not a match for the iPhone X the iPhone X with that software processing is a lot better now of course the iPhone X is 800 pounds more 800 pounds more so you would expect a lot better performance there but um, it's great and it's a nice little effect that you can get from uh, from this price a phone which maybe you wouldn't expect to get for this price you may expect oh well that's that's a feature you get on a higher-end phone but no you get that and that's really cool well we're going to include a link to Andy's preview and his photos on uh, on CNET in the show notes at techpodcast.uk so do look that up it's certainly worth looking at at least just to have a, a look at some of these pictures both of the device itself um, as well as the, the pictures that the the phone has produced because I, I think both are impressive although obviously the awards would probably go to Andy for the photography of the device but we'll leave that in your hands dearest listeners to make up your own mind uh, find that and let us know any thoughts you have on it hello at techpodcast.uk well we're now cruising uh, about 20 miles north of uh, rugby, uh, it seems the the uh, the place, not the sport. In fact, I have no idea what the connection is between the sport and the place. Maybe the sport originated in rugby. Um, Andy, do you have any views on that? I actually think it's got nothing to do with it. Very well, insightful stuff. Let's move on then and <laughs> talk about. Final Fantasy 15 Pocket Edition. Now, we don't often talk about games on the podcast, largely because I don't necessarily believe that everyone who is interested in tech is interested in games. Um, but, <clears throat> but we had to pick out this one to talk about simply because of, I think, the fact it represents a new benchmark for mobile gaming. Um, this is a console-grade remake, essentially, of a console an actual console game, Final Fantasy XV. It had been in development for 10 years, the console version. It was very, very impressive. Certainly, I enjoyed it. Andy played through it and enjoyed it a great deal. My wife enjoyed it too. So, generally speaking, an excellent game. And so when Square Enix, which was the developer of the game, came out and said, OK, we're going to remake this entire game, you know, without really cutting it down in any, in any way for mobile, I was both excited and massively sceptical at the same time. But what 
the first few days of its release has shown me is that this really is probably the best game of its type on mobile ever released. It plays like a full-size console quality game. The story is exactly the same as the console version, or the voice acting is the same. Even the animations, from what I can tell, look exactly the same. It's also, it's almost as if somebody did a find and replace command on the code and said, just remove the graphics and replace them with these graphics and then export as if it was the same, because almost nothing is different. Some of the exploratory aspects of the game um, are just slightly less open-worldy, um, <clears throat> but still vast, and it still feels like the same world that we were, we were playing last year in the console game. And the other thing that's interesting about this is the fact that Square Enix has chosen to price the game at £20. And they've gone for an interesting model because you can play for the first chapter of the game, which is, you know, maybe an hour or so's gameplay, depending on how you depending on how you play. And then it prompts you to pay either for the next one or two chapters at 99p in the UK, that is, um, for each chapter, or just buy the rest of the game for 20 quid. You can play it offline and then sync your saves back to the cloud. And for me, it's a great thing to see. We saw it recently as well with Sid Meier's Civilization VI, where that was brought to the iPad in its in, in its exact. Uh, it basically, it was exactly the same as the the PC version. There were no changes uh, other than some tweaks for the interface for the touchscreen. It was otherwise a full size and indeed also full price game. Um, and also an uh, earlier example of this was the XCOM series um, that 2K publishes and that they released that on the iPad and uh, it was basically exactly the same game just with some graphical reductions. So Andy, you've played this game through. I know you're a big fan of Final Fantasy XV. I was a huge fan of Final Fantasy XV. I personally think this sets a new benchmark for what is possible on a mobile device. And I should point out it's also playable on the iPhone and it will be coming to Android as well. I'm extremely excited about this because I think that as long as this sells well, this sends a real message to game developers that there's a, there is now a real market for truly console-level gaming on the move. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's fantastic. Um, I, I have had some misgivings in the early days. Um, the, the release has gone out. I think it is a bit buggy. Um, I've had some issues whereby um, when I, I save a game and then come to reload it at a later point, um, it will simply not load my save file and I've had to restart the game and I've had to um, uh, manually sync over cloud saves, reinstall the game and various little problems like that have come up. Um, things like um, when I've been in battle, some of the uh, dialogue that, that the characters say to each other at one point switched to German and then back again. Um, which was very, which is very odd. Um, so I don't quite know um, what th what that was about. And I've been on the reviews, and that is um, something that I've seen uh, other people complain about. So I think that that is that they are known bugs. Um, so disappointing because I was really keen to kind of get on with this game and to start playing through. Because you're right, I loved Final Fantasy. The storyline was great. The gameplay was great. This is stripped back. the the um, the, the art style itself is more um, cartoony, whereas um, the, the the console version was more. Um, not quite photorealistic, but proper 3D graphics. Um, and uh, it's more linear, where, where, whereas before with Final Fantasy XV you had a full open world, you can explore every single little area, you've got more like set routes around different zones. So it's a, it, it, they have um, sort of paired it back, but I think in, in ways that 
doesn't detract from the actual gameplay. It feels it still feels like the uh, the Final Fantasy 15 that we've that we've really enjoyed. So definitely just looking forward to frankly getting off the M1, getting home, making a cup of tea, and carrying on playing. I think the, the, the art style is an interesting one because the way you described it, I would slightly disagree with. I mean, certainly, yes, it's, it's, it's visually very, very different. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's still also very, very high resolution, you know, great quality textures, background, full 3D. It's a design that had this been play, you know, released for console, I don't think anybody would have criticized it. I think they would have just said they've gone for an interesting art style this time around. And we've seen that in other, in other games, you know, some of the more cartoony games like um, the, the tales of Zestria and, and, its, and its brothers and sisters. And I'd say also if, um, like Zelda Breath of the Wild on the Switch, like they went for um, that sort of cell shading um, art style, which firstly, it looks stunning and it's a really lovely environment to be in, but it's also um, a slightly lighter weight on the less demanding of the, uh, of the console's uh, processor, which overall just makes for much smoother gameplay and fewer crashes, fewer laggy points in battle. Um, so again, like I think they've made absolutely the right decision on that game. And I think the same is true of uh, Final Fantasy XV. I think it's interesting you mentioned the Switch, actually. I wasn't planning on, on bringing that up, but now I think about it, this, this version of Final Fantasy XV could easily be played on the Switch. And it would be amazing on the Switch. I think the Switch is... I adore the Switch for RPGs. Um, I, I invested hundreds of hours in Zelda Breath of the Wild. Same again now, I've been replaying Skyrim. Um, and I think Skyrim on the Switch has been, for me, an absolute revolution of that game. I've played that game on, on multiple consoles and on PC, um, and playing it again on the Switch and being able to just immediately load it up and play it wherever I am, in the bath, in bed, on a plane, on a train, on the tube, on the way to work, is just fantastic. It's really kind of opened up that game for me. Um, and I think definitely the same could be, could be true of Final Fantasy. I'd happily invest the same amount of hours as I did on the console version on the... Um, I think I played on the Xbox rather than the PS4. I did. Uh, I would happily play that same amount again on the Switch. Well, we've just passed the sign saying welcome to Northamptonshire, so that's exciting to me. And we're about to run out of fuel, so we do need to stop pretty quickly. That seems like a good enough point to wrap up this segment before we uh, sort of literally stop in the middle of this four-lane side of the M1. Uh, but let us know any thoughts you have on Final Fantasy XV's Pocket Edition, uh, hello at techpodcast.uk. If you haven't played it, but you've got one of the later generation iPhones or iPads, the game's free to download. And if you're curious just to see this, the, the state of what mobile gaming is like today and, and maybe haven't played too many high-end games before, there's no harm in going and downloading this for free and playing the first hour or so and just get a sense for what's being done now in gaming because as the last few minutes of conversation have hopefully shown, this probably sets a bit of a new benchmark and uh, it's made us very excited as to what's to come. Although we need to pull over, so we'll be back after this sound effect. We are rejoining us now at the Watford Gap service station where we've stopped for fuel successfully and also a cup of tea. Andrew, I'm very excited to once again get to talk about the promise of high-speed broadband, but this time under the twin umbrellas of both Island, rural island, and also 5G. That's because Vodafone Island has promised the rollout of 5G within 24 months, having successfully demonstrated the mobile technology at an event in Dublin. This is according to the Irish Times this week. Vodafone had partnered with Ericsson and said it achieved speeds of... Can you guess the speeds that they achieved? Um, 
up to one gig. 15 gigabits per second oh. with a latency of less than five milliseconds, which is extremely good. Um, now, it's generally believed that any devices being able to take advantage of 5G tech won't be commercially available until at least 2020. And the industry body GSMA has forecast there'll be 1.1 billion 5G connections globally by 2025. Now we're in 2018 now, that's seven years away until we have just a billion connections, which, I, and I say just because 5G will be in so many more devices than just smartphones and tablets that to me, one billion doesn't seem like an awfully high number. But to think that we may be only 18 months, 24 months away from 5G being deployed, you know, that's that's really quite exciting. Um, we did get a bit more detail about how this is actually going to work, which is one of the most interesting aspects of this right now is just how are these technologies going to be deployed. And Vodafone Island told the Irish Times that it intends to deploy 5G radios on top of base stations for 4G, so the 4G transmitters, and they'll then connect the signals, which meant apparently according to Vodafone, that 4G customers shouldn't see any disruption in the coming years while they're rolling this out um, and also maybe see improved 4G services in the future as they're basically investing in existing infrastructure. So is this just for um, uh, cities or is this going to be rolled out inside the rural areas of Ireland, of which there are many? Well, this is the really interesting question because there is an enormous problem both in rural Ireland as well as parts of England, certainly rural Scotland as well, um, where the advancements in technology essentially continue to be prioritised for the cities and more densely populated areas. So rural people tend to get left behind. And worse as well, the wireless solutions that, uh, you know, like 5G, increasingly use a much higher frequency radio um, parts of the radio spectrum so they, they deliver faster speeds but over shorter distances which means they're less able to penetrate buildings and certainly harder to navigate around you know the cliffs and valleys that we see in rural Ireland um, I mean that's hard enough for, for 4G even 3G in some in some regions so for 5G it's you know measured in the gigahertz it's just it's going to be a real problem so yeah it's it's going to be a, a city's thing initially um, now Richard Taylor who's one of our patrons and um, we were talking about this in the the Patreon discord uh, chat room which which patrons have access to um, about this because he lives in Northern Ireland and in a very rural part of uh, the very north of Northern Ireland and uh, Richard said the same broadband woes that are in the Republic of Ireland are mirrored in the north too. It's the small rural areas not helped by government plans for social housing back in the 70s and 80s where small groups of council houses were built in the middle of the countryside. Many of these have single glazing windows and getting internet connectivity faster than 0.2 megabits so 200 kilobits per second is a dream uh, for the future, particularly in rural areas, Richard says, um, but it has to be government-led in terms of, you know, um, the problem being fixed here. Um, why are we wasting billions on 15-minute faster trains between London and Birmingham rather than setting up full national wireless coverage to all truly baffles me? And if Ian was here, certainly I think he would be saying, here, here, um, not just to clarify his position in relation to me, that he was here, um, but also that he agrees twice. Um, in fact, Richard further points out that it could be a real great winning um, election manifesto for the Irish government to prioritise 5G with a minimum speed of 300 megabits for everyone and call it a national utility, which I think would be would be great. I think it would be excellent because it gives people abilities to work and to, and to, and to 
start businesses and work remotely. Um, so people aren't tied to the cities. That's the whole point of having a wider rollout in the UK. We've got housing crises in London and crises rather, and, um, and our cities are becoming increasingly overpopulated. But by having these um, these infrastructures in place, it means that people can e- effectively work wherever they need to and start business- businesses from their homes, whether that's a home on the outskirts of Sheffield or a home in the highlands in the middle of the mountains. Like That's, that's what will help these places develop. I don't think you listened to our show last week, did you? Uh, let's just go with yes, but also no. Why? Go back and listen to it and see if your comments sound eerily familiar to those of Mr. Morris. Oh, well, me and Mr. Morris, we get on with a lot of a lot of similar opinions. Well, Richard says that one of the only ways they are able to connect to the internet is by using a 3G, 4G uh, modem, essentially. There's no wired connection available to them. I asked him how much, uh, you know, what sort of prices they have to pay for that. And he says they have a 450 gigabyte a month limit um, on 3's network for about £20 a month, £20, £21 a month, which to me sounds like a bloody great deal. That's huge, yeah. Whether that's enough for a business... Because obviously, if you know, depending on your on your business, but that could be um, uh, fairly limiting. But obviously, for a personal use, and even for me as a as a journalist and photographer, that would be considerably more than I would ever realistically need to use um, every month. Well, he says um, it's okay until you try and watch a 4K movie from iTunes. He said he had to wait nine hours until he could watch Blade Runner 2049 on his Apple TV 4K. So I I, I was going to say, I feel your pain. I don't. I have 390 megabit fiber optic at home. Um, But on the other hand, I remember what it was like back in the 90s. um, And uh, I'm just channeling that feeling of pain. Now, Andy mentioned the Highlands of Scotland. Now, we had an email from Ali Foote, another listener, who says, Hi, guys. Thought you might be interested in the coverage situation in Ullapool, northwest Scotland. Lovely. You're right, Ali. I am. Our village has around 1,200 residents, but increasing, but, but increases considerably during the summer tourist season. We also have thousands of travellers using the ferry service, which, ser- which serves the Outer Hebrides. It's the major hub for the Western Isles, and the harbour recently underwent a £30 million improvement programme to improve many ferry services. Ullapool is, a, is of significant importance to the economy of the Highlands. Also, we're not a major accommodation provider for the very popular North Coast, um, and this is not a remote community. However, 3 and EE provide an alleged 3G service. I've never seen the 3G icon on any of my phones and can only get an average download speed of around 200 kilobits per second on a good day, which actually is exactly the same figure that um, Richard joked about um, in the previous message. Vodafone and O2 only provide 2G. They have never upgraded. It's an absolute joke, especially since the village has had fibre broadband for over a year now. Interesting, last week I was in Loch Inver. That is how you pronounce it, isn't it? I think so, yeah. A small village uh, 30 miles north and received 30 megabit per second 4G uh, in a far more remote and mountainous area. We also continually lose all mobile services for weeks at a time after storms. The last outage was at Christmas and lasted about three weeks. Hope this dismal situation gives you an insight into the problem. Yeah, it it absolutely does. And um, a couple of years ago, my wife and I were up in the highlands of Scotland and, um, you know, we had such terrible job just maintaining any kind of internet connectivity, which was a real problem when we were relying on GPS on our phone for maps. Fortunately, Kate's addicted to Ordnance Survey, so we had a, a, a healthy stock of maps in the back. But uh, nonetheless, it was it was a it was a challenge. In all honesty, this doesn't make me any less jealous of you, Ali, for living in such a beautiful part of the world. My dream is to move to the Highlands, whether or not I can get good internet access. 
Let's move into our mailbag before Andy and I pull out of Watford Services Station. There's a, a car just driving past, looking nervous. Toot, he, can't, toot. he can't find a space. Oh, he's just using the forecourt to turn around. Kimberly writes in from the US in response to our conversation around the future of education, where maybe teachers aren't always required in schools thanks to great video link and mobile technologies. Uh, she says, I think this can be great for secondary level students, but not for preschool, elementary. That's, uh, what do we call that over here? Nursery and primary school, I think yeah. we call that. Um, those kids need the physical presence of a teacher and classmates. Think about simply teaching someone to cut or write without being able to help them position their hands. I know at my school, even the fifth graders frequently would hug their teacher. Kids that age just need a physical presence. Also, something I would worry about on both levels is hunger. 70% of the students at the school where I taught depended on free and reduced breakfasts and dinners. We would have kids come to us crying and begging us not to have Thanksgiving break because there was no food at home. Eventually, a local charity started a program that sent home breakfast and lunch for every family member under 18 in our needy family. Uh, in our needy families each weekend. For breaks longer than three days, they would set up in our parking lot and hand out meals each day. These were shelf-stable uh, things like breakfast bars along with a sandwich, but more than what our kids had at home. This year, several districts in my area are actually providing dinner because of the number of families displaced by flooding from Harvey. That was the hurricane, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Finally, schools are often the first time child abuse is reported. Here in the States, we've had horrific cases of child abuse that have been covered up by homeschooling. Now, on the secondary level, that's completely different. I know kids that have thrived using remote schooling in the middle of Houston. Where I lived in West Texas in the 90s, a group of school districts were using a variation on this. They served a huge area, but very small populations. They wanted advanced classes, but often no one had the local knowledge to teach these classes, and no one with the knowledge wanted to work for the low wages in an isolated area. They were using video conferencing and hiring experts and teachers from other areas to do the teaching. In the case of science classes, a member of the local staff would be trained to supervise lab classes for safety reasons. Reasons. I moved, so I don't know how successful the effort was. And that's really interesting. I'd never, particularly the, th the thought about, about the, the physical side of, uh, of teaching, the, you know, using scissors, the, the painting classes and things like that. That, that. Yeah, that would be very difficult to, to justify replacing even semi-permanently with a remote teacher. Completely agree that the, the whole point of of of, uh, of learning at, at, at such a young age is is the interaction not only with with the teachers but with other students as well. The the inspiration you get from seeing how other children tackle problems and then you learn how to do those problems yourself um, is absolutely crucial to education. So I, I I don't think that we'll anytime soon hopefully um, see a replacement for uh, for the classrooms um, at that sort of age. But completely agree. I think the the opportunities for uh, for bringing different types of education to uh, to older students. Um, it's fantastic using sort of teleconferencing and whatnot. I think the interaction with other kids as well is always going to be important. I think particularly in, in uh, you know, in, in the world where, it, you know, prejudice is sadly rife in, in a lot of parts of the world. I remember in, in our school where we grew up in, in, in Derbyshire, we had a, a, a lad in our class who had Down syndrome. And he was incredibly well liked by all the students, and it was and it was great having him in the class because it meant he got a much more normal education rather than being isolated somewhere else. But it also meant a lot of the young kids, you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen, you know, the age groups where kids can be quite mean, um, you know, they were they were used to having someone in their daily lessons um, who was less able than than they were, and you know, we had very very little if any, discrimination um, against the kids with, with disabilities in the school. And, and I believe it was because the school had, you know, welcomed, you know, a, a great number of, um, 
of, of people with with Down syndrome and other disabilities into the lessons. I think it was it was great. Yeah, that that, and I think that's a good example of when that does work. But there are sadly plenty of examples where it doesn't. Where uh, maybe that that particular child's needs would be different, and and that sort of inclusive education isn't necessarily um, the right solution for them. Um, and I think that there again we're going to have um, uh, continue to see. Uh, occasions where a more hands-on approach um, is necessary where simply having that child in front of the screen isn't going to work um, not only just for their needs but also um, if they need so much attention from a teacher in a room that the rest of the children um, don't get um, enough attention then again you're still having the problem that people are falling behind for different reasons so I think I think there needs to be solutions that that will suit everyone's needs and I think certainly by having using tech um, will allow that to happen and I think in, in a way that is less costly than simply having tons of teachers. It makes me wonder whether in the classroom of the future, it's not so much about replacing the teachers, but augmenting them with AI assistance. So if you do have a child that's requiring more of a teacher's time, maybe some of the more able students are able to be assisted by an AI um, that's responding to their very specific needs and also knows their educational background, their abilities, their grades, what other subjects they excel at in order to provide a kind of customized, tuned, um, always up to date assistance while the physical teacher is, is helping someone, you know, learning what paint is not to mention the ease of which a uh, an ai equipped robot could deliver electric shocks if that child doesn't pay attention and um, well thank you very much for prompting such an interesting debate kimberly um if any other teachers or, or people in in educational establishments have views on how tech is or isn't assisting in their current previous or perhaps future schools maybe you have a crystal ball um feel free to rub it and let us know what appears in it hello at techpodcast.uk um, mike gilmore wrote in one of our regular uh, frequent supporters and listeners um he said Hi, Nathan Ian. No love for you, Andy, sorry. Um, Just thought I'd write in again with some more news from inside the mobile industry, this time to follow up on your listener this week that asked about visual voicemail. EE have had the service for a number of years now, though it isn't activated by default. You need to request it or text an EE shortcode to switch it on. The good news is that Vodafone is launching visual voicemail this year, provisionally penciled in for the third quarter, so sometime after the summer. They went to tender last year for the supply of the new visual voicemail system here in the UK, but chose not to invest in the old system uh, to upgrade it for visual voicemail, uh, which is why we basically had to wait so long for it. Um, so that's that's fascinating. So we are getting visual voicemail. I posited last week that it was pointless because so few, you know, far fewer people are using phones and, and more people are leaving messages via messaging apps. But apparently Vodafone is going to upgrade so that's that's great um andy you'll enjoy this email we had from Stuart collins who is over the moon about theme hospital effectively coming back it's uh part of the two i think it's called two point hospital um that is uh, going to be creating it uh, it's coming back says um says Stuart. i loved that game genuinely every couple of months i'll google to see if there's anything similar around there are a couple but none nearly as good i'm a neuroscientist and work in the pharma industry i'm pretty sure that there's some origins from playing this as a kid please keep us updated and please let it not just be on the pc i'm mac only um fascinating to think that theme hospital may have inspired someone to become a neuroscientist i mean you studied psychology pan did you ever think about becoming a neuroscientist as a result of theme hospital it was entirely because of theme hospital in the same way i also nearly became a theme park uh, developer um and um, also wanted to be a sonic the hedgehog um, I'm, I just take all my cues from games, and now I haven't, and I'm pretty sad about the way my life's gone. Um, I'm, however, overjoyed at the idea of uh, Theme Hospital coming back. Was it was it specifically for um, PC and consoles, or was it going to be a... Because this seems like a game that's designed for iPad now these days. 
it's only been confirmed for PC, but I am going to be finding out more because I think it would be a missed opportunity not to release it on uh, on the Mac and certainly on the iPad and, and, and Android tablets. It, it seems like it would be a massive missed opportunity. Absolutely, like that. It, it that it's that is gold for the iPad. Dragging out where you want your hospital to be, putting people. Like, it's a t- it's it's a completely touch based game. It needs to be on an iPad. Well, finally, uh, we had a, a short note from Richard Aldroyd who said, uh, who wrote in about our discussion around uh, cat-based technology. And he said, I've not yet got a cat feeder that has facial recognition, but I do have cat feeders that work via the chip that the cats have in them for identification. He says they're expensive, but they solve the fat cat, skinny cat problem, i.e. if the fat cat comes up, the feeder recognises based on the chip and doesn't give food. And when the skinny cat who doesn't eat enough does come up, he says, you're the skinny one and opens a, a you know a supply of food. So it's called the Surefeed Microchip Pet Feeder, according to Richard. That's the one he uses. Surely it just seems like the, the fat cat, presumably the bigger cats, could be um, uh, enough of the bully to sort of drag the thin cat over to the feeder, hold it down until the chip recognises, and then the fat cat takes the food. Fortunately, cats haven't developed that level of maliciousness yet. It's a shame in a way. Um, well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening, for putting up with the fact that we've been recording this uh, on the road. But hopefully you've enjoyed the slightly different atmosphere that it's given us. Let's check into Tom Merritt. Or rather, let's check in with Tom Merritt. Goodness, don't check into him. That would be incredibly rude and invasive. Um, Tom, what's been going on in the wider world of tech this week? Thank you, guys. This week on Daily Tech News Show, we chat about the Center for Humane Technology and whether we need early startup employees to protect us from the huge company those startups have become. Talk with app maker Brett Rounceville about Apple's poor communication skills. Get the scoop on high-res audio from Patrick Norton. Mold over the tech revelations in Quincy Jones' amazing Vulture interview and marveled at the Uber Waymo settlement. We even shoehorned a little bit more in there at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Shoehorn! Excellent to shoehorn the shoehorn in. Uh, we didn't have Ian here this week, so yours is the only mention of a shoehorn this week. Um, also, yes, as a massive audio nerd, I highly recommend checking out the high-res audio uh, feature on uh, on the midweek show on DTNS. It's uh, it's a big it's a it's a topic I'm very passionate very passionate about. So exciting stuff indeed. Um, let us know any feedback you have on this week's show or any topics that you would like us to discuss in future hello at techpodcast.uk and if you haven't considered joining us as a patron um, maybe you'd love to start off february wait we're halfway through february maybe you'd like to start off the second half of february um, by joining us as a patron and uh, sample our longer our longer feeds and get involved in our live streams our discord chat room it's it's buzzing through the week it's perhaps the perfect valentine's gift for a loved one so thank you and uh, yes have a happy valentine's everybody uh, don't be stupid Look out for Cupid. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.